Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Peter McKay says that Andrew Scheer's Conservative Party missed scoring on an open net. That was his assessment of the last election. Twitter has decided to ban all political advertisements on their platform, and the U.S. is preparing for a historic vote for formalization of the impeachment process against Donald Trump. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Peter McKay, the uh, former uh, deputy leader, and I guess one-time leader of the uh, Progressive Conservative Party before they amalgamated uh, some years ago, uh, is making news uh, with some comments that he made about the election campaign. I guess he was speaking to a group of people in Washington, D.C. the other day. And uh, he said uh, he ripped into the uh, Conservative Party's uh, election performance under Andrew Scheer, comparing it to a hockey player on a breakaway missing an open net. Uh, you get the insinuation as to where he's going on that. But he also went further and talked about the campaign itself and said that uh, the campaign debate over social issues like same-sex marriage and abortion was like a stinking albatross hanging around Shear's neck. And that, he said, was one of the major causes for the Conservatives' defeat in the election last week. Pretty strong words, and there's a lot of pushback from Conservatives and others about uh, Mr. McKay's comments. Joining us to talk about this is Howard Ramos, who is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at Dalhousie University out on the East Coast. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Peter McKay has always been outspoken, uh, rather uh, graphic in his uh, his descriptors sometimes. He's he's a a personality, a a vibrant personality on the political scene. Uh, Did he step over a line here? Well, he certainly has the gift of the East Coast gab with yeah, the terms of, of phrase. <laughs> um, in, in terms of overstepping a line, uh, this is, was telegraphed uh, during the election campaign. There was a leak uh, that he, you know, he potentially would run for the leadership. I, I think that there certainly is a lot of questioning uh, within the Conservative camp, uh, asking why there wasn't the breakthrough in Ontario uh, and why there was uh, such big losses in, in Quebec and, and not really much of a breakthrough in Atlantic Canada. So I think that uh, he might be more outspoken than others, but I'm not surprised that the conversation's happening. Well, that's what I was going to ask you as a second question. Is he really speaking for a number of other people that have yet to actually voice their, their, their displeasure about this? Well, there were a number of people, if you uh, look through the newspapers yesterday, who were voicing concerns, some MPs from uh, Quebec and also uh, Chong from uh, southern Ontario, who were also reminding folks that there's a leadership review and, and, and having some grumblings as well. So I don't think that he's alone. And I think that it's a, a discussion that's really important for the Conservatives to have, uh, given that the, their route to success in the 2000s was being able to join the Reform and the Progressive Conservatives, uh, and that merger ended up alienating, I think, more and more Progressive Conservatives as time went on. And it's clear that if people want to hold power in Canada, uh, the kind of virtue signaling, as people call it, of the Liberals uh, hasn't brought in a, a big umbrella of people, and nor has the uh, push towards uh, social conservatism. Uh, and so there's a need to kind of have a, a bit more ground in the middle. I, I heard those very same comments from a, a conservative insider here in Ontario that I was talking to uh, on, on the condition of anonymity. I guess they're a little concerned about the fallout that they may get if they actually go public with some of these comments. Is, is he said there is a feeling, and he's talking about some of the other organizations right across the country that he's been in dialogue with, that, uh, that the, the party has been basically moved over to, it's, as you mentioned, a social conservative party uh, based in Alberta and Saskatchewan now, and uh, the quote-unquote conservative values he said that he joined the party for don't long, no longer seem to exist. 
Oh, very much so. Somebody like Brian Mulroney these days would yeah. have a hard time finding a place that they would fit in the in the Conservative Party. And I would blame uh, the advent of micro-targeting of politics. Basically, uh, in the 2000s, people realized that you could uh, get a core base and then add about 5 to 10%, and then you could get a majority government with uh, as little as 38 39% of the vote. And I think that the political parties have become a little bit addicted to that uh, at the cost of building broad coalitions and bridges that really are the way to uh, maintain power. How did Stephen Harper do it then? Because the, the same things that are being said about Andrew Scheer now uh, were being said about Stephen Harper back in 2004, 2005, uh, that he was going to take this thing way to the right, and, and he was... He seemed to, actually, after he got elected, first a minority and, of course, later a majority government, uh, for the most part, not necessarily governed from the middle, but it was center-right anyway, nowhere near as extreme as, as the party seems to be now. Well, I think that that's a great example to look at, which is when he was in a minority position, he was really going center-right. Uh, as he got his majority, it was still center-right, but in that 2015 campaign where the Conservatives really lost it was around the barbaric practices hotline, yeah. uh, around the approach they took to Alan Kurdi, the, the, the Syrian refugee who washed up on a, a Turkish shore, and that really pushed Canadians away from uh, that government, and, and we saw the result. It was a majority for the Liberals. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things that the Conservatives have to balance. I don't think that Canadians are against somebody who uh, is religious or who has religious values. What Canadians, I think, are reacting to is the inability for uh, a leader to be able to say, look, I have these values, but despite my values, I'm willing to make bridges. And we saw that. I mean, even uh, Brian Mulroney, when he was the Prime Minister, had those same situations. So there were some moral issues that he was dealing with. And as, as a Catholic, he said, look, this is the way I feel about it. But on the end of the hand, uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God's. This is the law of the land. This is not, you know, to, and, and it's, it's a hard distinction. Paul Martin had to do the same thing with the, the Civil Marriage Act. Uh, Sheard didn't seem to be able to be comfortable in, in, in that shoes, trying to, to draw that distinction. And well, it certainly took him a lot of time to get around to that. It took him uh, a bit of fumbling for about a week before he was able to craft that kind of position, which led people to really wonder whether he truly held it. Uh, and then the same with marching in, in parades. Even if he's not willing to march, at least have a symbolic uh, gesture from the party with significant presence and, and recognize that it's important to have uh, pride marches as we have uh, LGBTQ members of our community, which is a sizable part of the Canadian population, uh, who should be respected, who have the same rights as others. And, and this is not a, a, against conservative values. This is actually part of conservative values. Uh, and there have been openly gay uh, ministers in the previous government. It, I, I use the example of uh, when we had this discussion just after the election, Howard. It was uh, I used Patrick Brown, who's certainly standing in the in the party has fallen considerably because of some of the things that happened when he was uh, attempting to become the premier here in Ontario. But when he was a member of Parliament uh, under the Harper government, as a matter of fact, he had that same label as a neocon and and uh, you know s serious issues about the LGBTQ community and civil marriage and things of this nature. Uh, when he got into provincial politics, he was for about lack of a better expression, he was reborn. You know, he marched in the great gay pride parades. I mean, he came up with a, an, an agenda when they were wanting to run for the election, which was very much middle of the road. I, I don't know whether or not he was sincere about that, but I, I talked to him a number of times, and he seemed to be. Uh, that's that's how politicians evolve, and, and Sheer just, I, I, think, I think that's actually what McKay was talking about when he talked about this albatross around his neck. He was stuck to these neocon values and, and couldn't seem to shake them and couldn't seem to move to the middle. Oh, very much so. In the campaign, he w didn't pivot very much, and he hasn't signaled uh, room to grow yet. I, d I don't think that Shear's uh, leadership is 
over by any means. There were certainly gains in the last election. Uh, but this is something that he'll have to wrestle with if he, he intends to be the leader for much longer. What about that? You mentioned the, uh, the leadership review, uh, which I guess is scheduled for April of, of next year. But I just saw a story, in, the, in I think it was in the Globe and Mail today, uh, that says apparently there was some clause in, in the Conservative Constitution that says they could do that as early as uh, in the next two weeks if they really wanted to, if there was a push to do that. Uh, there's always a rush to judgment. Uh, do cooler heads prevail, or do they go after him in, in such a big way, uh, a la Tom Mulcair after the last uh, election in 2015? Well, very much like Tom Mulcair, I think that this issue is not going to go away quickly. And, and if uh, he doesn't take some action to change or, or show that he's willing to change and open, uh, this will probably follow the same fate and, and uh, be dragged out to a point where he will uh, have contention for his, his leadership. And, and it's worth uh, the conservative movement taking a look at inward to recognize that uh, this kind of uh, extreme right-wing politic hasn't worked. It didn't work for Maxime Bernier. It didn't work for Kelly Leach. It lost the 2015 election. So it's one that the conservatives, if they really want to vie for power and have inroads across the country, really have to do some soul-searching. But why do they cling to those values then if it doesn't seem to be a winning proposition? Do they, do they, do they look at like a Doug Ford in Ontario and a, and a Jason Kenney in, in Alberta and say, well, look, yeah, there's still a market for that? Well, Doug Ford is a great example to talk about. If you look in the wake of the election, he's taken a very different stance. He hasn't uh, dug in his heels. Uh, he said, hang on a second, it's time for us to tone this down to try and build bridges. And his route to uh, power has not been anti-immigrant. It has not been uh, anti-gay marriage, etc. Uh, it's been a much more middle-of-the-ground conservative. So it's been much more center-right rather than right-of-right. Uh, and you're right. I mean, this past year he did march in a, in a gay pride parade in North York, uh, uh, which was a big change, obviously, for him and for the, the number of years he was on city council and, of course, as a premier as well. But but that's that's really the role of, of the advisors, isn't it, Howard, to, to be able to have the, the leader's ear in a situation like this and say, look, it, uh, notwithstanding your personal views on things, uh, this is the generally accepted view, and you have to at least acknowledge that, if not accept it and embrace it. Well, very much so. It's important for leaders to have uh, a diverse team around them of advisors rather than uh, people who just agree with them. And, and this is how we got to the situation, as I was saying before. It's this focus of micro-targeting, of having siloed communities, uh, and, and siloed uh, politics doesn't work well for getting majorities. So what do the Conservatives do? I mean, if, if we finish our conversation here, Howard, and, and, and you know, they call you right after this and said, Howard, look, at we've got a problem here. Uh, do, do they do that soul-searching, and do they look at that their platform and, and their stand on some of these controversial issues and say maybe it's time for a rethink on that, or do they stick to their guns? I would say that if they want to vie for power, they really do have to do a reboot and a rethink, and they just have to look back to the 1990s, uh, they came out of the ashes after the, the huge loss of the progressive conservatives in 1993 being whittled down to just two seats. Uh, and they were able to uh, make uh, bridges, make some coalitions, and come back to a majority government uh, a decade later. So there's a possibility to rebuild, and, and I think it's time to do a reset. Is there a strong enough foundation within the Conservative Party for those, at, as you say, middle of the road, the Peter McKays and, and others uh, within that party, uh, to actually have some influence on policy and, and perhaps uh, with the direction that the party should be going in? I'm not a conservative insider, so I really wouldn't be able to offer an informed uh, comment on that. But there certainly are people like Rona Ambrose, Lisa Raitt, 
Peter McKay who are still around, who are more center than right of center, uh, who could be tapped uh, to try and think uh, what a reboot might look like. You know, I always get the impression when I listen to, to people like Lisa Raitt uh, and, and Mr. McKay and some others, and Ron Ambrose, of course, who was the interim leader, uh, that, that they held those views and they kind of just kind of kept their mouths shut because they figured, okay, what, what's going on is going on and we're in power now. But it's, it's a changing dynamic right now. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's a, at least a, a, a willingness within the Conservative Party now to say, okay, maybe we maybe we should start listening to some of the things that they're doing and some of the things they're saying. I I'm still reminded of the uh, the speech that Ronna Ambrose made when she took over as interim leader. It was somewhat tongue in cheek, but she talked about you know the big bad man is gone now. We you know you can be a conservative again. Uh, maybe it's time to have that conversation again. Well, very much so. It's pretty clear that uh, with the vote, there's not much room beyond about 30, 33% of the electorate that want to support the, the conservative movement as it is, and that all the growth to be made is uh, more center and left of center. So it might be time to kind of dust off uh, what it was to be a progressive conservative, uh, which has been the route to uh, election for the conservative governments, at least in uh, eastern Canada and Atlantic Canada. Howard, is this becoming a polarizing situation of, of urban versus rural? Because uh, that that seems to be one of the other uh, interesting sidebar issues here as we start looking at some of the numbers. Uh, the Conservatives do not do well in cities, and 85% of the people in this country live in cities, uh, with the obvious exception of Calgary and Edmonton. But, I mean, in, in eastern Canada and in, in, the, in the Maritimes and certainly over in Vancouver, uh, the brand just doesn't seem to sell. I don't think that it's as, as polarized as people often want to make the story. There's a lot of commonality and common ground in Canada. Uh, most Canadians, uh, supermajorities, recognize that there's climate change and want climate action, even in Alberta. Uh, likewise, uh, the majority of Canadians see the need for, for pipelines and economy. Uh, what I do see as a distinction, uh, and it's inflamed through polarized politics and through polarized discourse, is uh, how we're going to navigate a transition from a resource-based economy to another type of economy, a more sustainable economy. And that's where I see a lot of the tensions happening, and when you look at some of the splits that are currently seen. Well, exactly, because I think we're still, a number of us are still hanging on to this concern that, look, at that transition is going to cost thousands and thousands of jobs, uh, and, you know, it's going to kill the economy. I mean, those are the talking points. And, and I don't know that uh, the, the progressive side has done enough yet to con- uh, allay and assuage some of those concerns. I would agree. I'm not sure that in uh, central Canada and eastern Canada we've fully uh, taken uh, stock of what it's like to be in Alberta right now uh, as an average Albertan. I often say to people uh, here in Atlantic Canada, many of us uh, have worked in the oil patch, uh, but for those who haven't, I, I remind people, well, remember how it felt in the 1990s when we had the collapse of the ground fishery. We had to rebuild our economy. Imagine what it would feel like if nobody was paying attention or we felt that nobody was paying attention. And, and that's what's going on in Western Canada. Is, is there's profound change to the economy, and I, I feel that they don't, uh, the average person doesn't feel that the rest of Canada is listening. These are interesting days, fascinating days, and very pivotal days, I think, uh, in, in the political scheme here in, in, in this country anyway. Uh, always a, a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Howard, thank you so much for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Take take care. You too. Howard Ramos, uh, of course, from Dalhousie University out in the East Coast. And uh, we'll see what kind of fallout we get from Peter McKay. He has sort of walked it back just a little bit and said, look, I'm I'm still supporting Andrew Scheer. I just think we have to do some soul-searching here about how they approach that election. And that's not bad advice, really, for any political party. We'll see just whether or not they embrace that or not. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Social media is going to play an important role in uh, the upcoming U.S. election. Uh, it certainly did in the, uh, the past uh, Canadian election that was held just a couple of weeks ago now. And uh, there's been a lot of heat, and I think justifiably so, on people like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook uh, about the sort of product that they leave on there. Uh, and a lot of heat from other social media platforms as well to try to get something done about this. Well, Twitter has finally responded. Uh, yesterday, they announced, Twitter announced that they will stop accepting political ads. The company's CEO, Jack Dorsey, announced that on Wednesday, said that we made the decision to stop all political advertising on Twitter globally. So that means no matter where there's an election. Uh, we believe that political messaging should be earned, not bought, according to uh, Dorsey's tweet. Uh, political message, he went on to say, earns reach when people decide how to follow an account or retweet. Paying for reach removes that decision, forcing highly optimized and targeted political messages on people. Now, we already know when we talk to political operatives that they love that sort of an idea, and they love the fact that it's kind of like open range on, on social media because you can target specific groups, you can say whatever you want, and there's very little filter that goes off, filtration that goes on with this stuff. Well, Mr. Dorsey at Twitter has said, not anymore. We're not going to edit it. We're not just going to allow it. That's the way that we're going to get around this. Uh, Facebook, quite a different story. Joining us to talk about this is Mark Gordon, a marketer and expert speaker, uh, who we've had many, many times on to talk about the impact of social media. Mark, how are you doing? Good to have you on again today. Good morning, Bill. Nice to be here. Uh, are you surprised by the Twitter announcement? Uh, yes and no. I guess my biggest surprise is, is well, it's, I'm surprised they did it, but I'm not surprised in how he did it. It is a wonderful form of spin doctoring, in my opinion. Such a, explain. Well, he's seen what's going on with Facebook and the amount of trouble they're getting into. I mean, they have their own staff revolting against uh, the management and Mark Zuckerberg saying, you know, these kinds of political ads are, are basically abusing the system. They're influencing people in a way that is inaccurate. Uh, you know, fake news, so to speak, is being broadcast. Special interest groups are posting facts that are incorrect. And for Twitter to, to see this going on, and, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey has to ask himself, okay, do I want to go through the effort of filtering everything, or is it worth it for me just to say no? And based on the fact that Twitter has not turned a profit ever, his stock is flat, it's, it's at like a seven-month low, he has to think, does he want any more bad press? And he sees the amount of bad press Facebook's getting for all of this. I think he's just chosen to walk away and say, you know what, it's better to have no part of it than to try to have a small part of it. And, uh, you know, it's, I believe it's an effort really to, to avoid having his stock price go down further due to bad press. Is this a, a, an effort then to be good cop, bad cop, with, uh, as, you know, when you juxtapose what they're doing with what Facebook is continuing to do? Well, he's done a nice job of positioning himself as taking the moral high ground, which I think to a degree makes Facebook look even worse. But I think, you know, when you dig a little deeper, you'll see that really his motivating factor is just to not get any, any more, uh, you know, bad news, uh, you know, to get the company in trouble, so to speak, in the eyes of the public, as Facebook has, and perhaps further lower or impact his stock price. I'm looking at some of the political comments uh, and, and the reaction to this. Now, it's it's fascinating. Uh, Brad Parscale, who is the Trump's campaign manager, said Twitter's move is a very dumb decision for their stockholders. Uh, I'm not so sure if it's a dumb decision for the stockholders. I mean, as you said, there's 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 no financial gain in this for for Twitter, is there? Well, they made very little money. I think in 2018 they just made a few million, uh, you know, in advertising. Which I, I heard less than three million. Yeah, uh, that represents probably less than 5% uh, 
of their entire earnings in terms of uh, ad revenue. Uh, but of course you're going to get political parties who are upset by this. They like the idea of being able to spend whatever amount of money they want and getting their message out there. I mean, who can blame them? But with regards to, to stockholders, if I was a shareholder in Twitter, I'd be very happy about this because the last thing I need is a company I have money invested in going, uh, you know, getting into trouble promoting uh, information which may be inaccurate. So what's what's the upside for for them to do this? And and you mentioned money here, and and obviously that let's let's not kid ourselves. I think you're absolutely right, Mark. I mean, if this if these guys were making hand money hand over fist on this thing, I don't know they'd be making an announcement like this. But Zuckerberg sticking to his guns. Well, it's interesting because as far as I'm concerned, Twitter hasn't been a social network in over ten years. I mean, it really is a network I believe where everybody on there has an agenda, and they're either promoting themselves, their ideas their companies, their products, you know, whatever it is, there's always some form of promotion. Uh, I think the day of, of, you know, everyone joining hands and singing Kumbaya on Twitter, those days have long passed. But with regards to uh, Facebook, there is sort of that, that social aspect, and there's a different company philosophy there as well, and that being that people should be able to share whatever they want, and companies should be able to share whatever they want, and if they're willing to pay for it, and at least not promote something that is blatantly inaccurate, then they should have the right to do so. So I think Mark Zuckerberg's coming at it from the same perspective that, you know, if a company like Coca-Cola can place an ad on Facebook, then why can't, you know, the, the Democratic Party, as long as that information is correct? Which, again, what does that really mean? Well, and therein lies the, the problem. Yeah, because, I mean, there have been examples, and, and well, even in the past Canadian election here, uh, there were some posts, as you know, that, about Justin Trudeau that were just blatantly false. They were lies. Uh, Zuckerberg refused to take them down, said, I know they're wrong, I know they're incorrect, but I'm not going to do that. I want people to make the decision for themselves. So, I mean, he's totally backed off this altogether. So it, he's not doing any edi- editorializing at all, but is, is, that, is that fair to put what he knows to be incorrect co- uh, content uh, in, onto the, and just leave it there for people to disseminate? Well, what he's chosen to do is to say no political advertising, but he will allow posts and edits and, and uh, paid content by special interest groups or people who, you know, it, it's deemed editorial, even though obviously there's a, a spin to it. So he's kind of drawn that line in the sand. The problem is that line is so blurry, nobody can actually find it or identify it. Uh, so it's, you know, <laughs> it's a no-win situation for Mark Zuckerberg, uh, where with regards to Twitter, you know, that's an issue that they're not going to have to deal with at all anymore. So from a sort of a, a staying out of trouble perspective, from a PR perspective, I think Jack Dorsey did a wonderful move, you know, stepping back, it's good for business, and positioning himself as taking this, uh, you know, ethical or moral high ground, that also puts him in a good position. And it can only help his company. Whereas Mark Zuckerberg, he's going to continue to have to deal with this stuff, especially with the upcoming American election. It's interesting you talk about demographics, and you, you mentioned this to us months ago, Mark, and this maybe seems to be another example that underscores the point you were making uh, about who's using Twitter these days and, and whether or not it's actually reaching an audience. And I understand that uh, simply because of, of the information that's available there, you can, you can target messages, and we get that. But, you know, when you think of Twitter right now, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's agenda-driven by just about everybody that's on there. Uh, and at the same token... <laughs> You look at who's using it. I mean, there's Donald Trump, and I mean, you know, his his tweets are infamous now uh, because he's on there all the time. But 
when you look at demographics, millennials and others, uh, I'm not saying they abandoned Twitter, but they've moved on to other platforms, and I don't know that they're using it anymore, and that's going to be a very difficult message uh, to get across to some of the people in that age demographic because they're not looking at Twitter anymore. Well, it seems to me that Twitter has has more become a a sort of a news feed, so to speak, where you just go on to see who's saying what. Uh, I read some statistics somewhere that less... Um, less than 1% of Twitter subscribers are posting 99% of the content. So really, that, that doesn't you know, surprise me. That doesn't surprise yeah, me at I, all. I, I stopped Twitter. I mean, I still have an account, but I haven't posted a tweet in, wow, must be at least two or three years. It has, you know, I've just moved on to other things. I never liked Twitter from the start, uh, especially in the last few years. It seems to be just a, a cesspool of hate and criticism, and, and like we touched on, uh, really a, an agenda for each person, whether to, to market themselves or their products or their political party or whatever. So, you know, it's really, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a giant sounding board where you've got a lot of people talking, and it's, it's up to individuals to choose what they listen to. But is there really that, that social aspect of it anymore? I, I don't think so. Which which turns everybody's attention to some of the other platforms. As you say, there's Instagram, there's Snapchat uh, for for different demographics. But Facebook seems to be consistent. And I know they took a hit, obviously, because of a, of what happened with the election last time, the last U.S. election. And, and Zuckerberg got raked over the coals by a congressional committee. Although I think about 75% of the people on that committee had no idea exactly how social media works. But nonetheless, I guess they got their talking points from their staff and they went after this. But Zuckerberg is, is actually, he's fighting back, and he's making these distinctions. And as you say, he says, okay, we're not going to do political ads on Facebook, but we will allow political opinions uh, or for other things. And he says, you know, <laughs> if somebody wants to make a post about something, you know, about some social program or something like that, and there's a political bent to it, he says, why shouldn't we let that on there? And, and it's, that's a pretty hard argument to, to, to fight. It is, and he's going with the whole social aspect of sharing, you know, and the idea being is that if I have an idea about virtually anything, I should be allowed to share that. That's what kind of the whole concept of being social is, is sharing ideas. But the, the, where things get a little hairy is when, you know, someone posts something and they present it as simply an idea or an opinion, but there's clearly a slant to it, and they slip in little bits of information, be them true or not, that kind of influences a decision by somebody who is reading it. And that's where there's that gray area, and that's why some of his staff now are revolting against them, saying, look, we understand that you're not going to accept political ads. The problem is you're accepting the ideas of others that have a clear agenda and have the ability to influence people using information which may not be correct. What about the uh, the bad guys uh, that that were obviously involved? I know Trump doesn't seem to want to believe this, but I mean the Mueller report was pretty clear that that the Russians were involved uh, through social media to try to influence that last U.S. election. Uh, there's some concern now about where that may come from in the other election. Are they looking at all this controversy now uh, with what Twitter's doing and what Facebook is doing, and 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 deciding whether or not they're actually going to go back into this and delve into this? I mean, they're not just going to give up and say, "Okay, we won't do that anymore." You you got to know, Mark, that they're going to try to find ways to to still infiltrate. Oh, of course they're going to try to find ways to infiltrate it. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's only as good as the people, you know, who are able to stop it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And it sounds to me like Mark Zuckerberg has left that door open a little bit. So anybody anywhere in the world, again, can post something. And if it's deemed an opinion piece or an editorial, it'll go through. So in many ways, what Mark Zuckerberg has done, I believe, is let the whole world know exactly what he will accept.
So you, me, or anyone else in the world, we can create a piece of content, we can put a slant to it, but if we present it as being our personal view or idea, well, then we know it'll, it'll be accepted and it'll appear on there. And if we can push it hard enough and promote it, it'll reach the masses and perhaps influence the decisions of a lot of people. This brings us all back to the conversation you and I had, I guess, over a year ago, uh, whether or not the, the, the government should regulate or they should self-regulate in this situation. Obviously, I think we know where Zuckerberg is on this. I think it's very tough for government to regulate any of this kind of stuff. I mean, really, at the end of the day, all of this, at the end of the, of the day, all of this is really just a website. That's all it is. It's a website, all of them. It doesn't matter what network it is, whether it be Instagram or, or Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat. These are all websites, and they're all businesses, and the job of a business is to turn a profit. So really, I think the only thing the government could step in on would be sort of you know, anti-competitive acts or, or things like that that squeeze out uh, other businesses. But really, in terms of the way the business runs itself, it's not, it's not really doing anything illegal per se. What it's doing, though, is creating a form for other people to, to operate, I wouldn't say below the law per se, but operate in ways which <laughs> question society's standards, I suppose. Well, and, and does it really do anything to change people's opinions? I mean, you know, Zuckerberg uses the example, you know, if, uh, if, if Coke and Pepsi want to put ads in there, I mean, that may swing somebody to go from one cola to another, but that's not going to change the world. Uh, but if we elect political people based on misinformation from social media, uh, that can have an impact. But he's suggesting that there's enough information out there for all of us to make up our own minds about this. If you agree with it, fine. If you want to share it, fine. But if you're going to share it, it's usually because you agree with that, whatever that individual with that post is saying anyway. And if you don't, I mean, we all know the, the stuff, and you've talked about this many times when you've been on the show, Mark. You know, we can look for the signs of, of what might be false information. You know, the web pages, you know, the source, uh, where it, they it were supposedly reprinted from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if we choose to ignore all that and simply said, I don't like that politician, and this ad here says the guy's a jerk, I'm going to forward that. They're going to do it anyway. Right. So it's very interesting the way people's absorption of news has changed over the last couple of years. There was a time when we used to turn to the news and we'd see some information given to us and we would process it in our brains and come to our own decision. But over the last number of years, especially with the advent of social media and more editorial uh, type news on networks like Fox and CNN, what's happening now is people will have an idea in their head and they will gravitate to news sources that support those ideas. And they will not analyze the source of that news. So for example, if you're very pro-Trump, for example, you will be drawn to articles that support your ideas, articles that talk about how great he is, the things he's accomplished. And many of them will be editorial. Some might be based on fact. But either way, that's what you're going to look at. And it's going to further reinforce your views. And you'll be more prone to share that. So with regards to Facebook, allowing editorial content to appear, it's going to really create more more opportunities for people who support those specific views to share that and push it out to their network. And in a sense, it allows all of us to become influencers. And, and, and it's, it's funny that we're even having this conversation because I think at one point or another, we'd all like to be able to have that power to think that, hey, this is the point of view I have. I'm going to post this and hopefully I'm going to get some people to agree with it and maybe, maybe, maybe sway public opinion or somebody's opinion on this as well. And you can see that from the, some of the comment section and some of the posts that do go up there. It does have an impact. And you're right. If we say, no, we're not going to do this anymore, the people that want that stuff, I guess, Mark, they're going to go looking for it someplace else because that's what they gravitate to. 
Absolutely. And you know what? I think it's, it's even more on a micro level. It's not so much as me sharing that article because I want to influence people. In many ways, I would just share that article because I'm feeling really lonely today, and I hope a lot of people like it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that'll make me feel good. Well, it's, uh, yeah, okay. That's better than, you know, you're pet dressed up in a, ha- a Halloween costume, I suppose. Uh, it, where does this end? I, I mean, w- this is, this is you know, we're, we're a year away from the U.S. federal election, and that's that's the big daddy. That's the one that's going to elect a president or re-elect a president, whatever the case might be. And you know that everybody's getting geared up for this, and you know that, that they're looking to play defense here to make sure that a lot of this stuff doesn't get on side. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the technologies are there, but at the same time, for every time we we develop something that's going to be a, 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 a safeguard, I guess, for this, there's always somebody on the other side that's going to develop a way to get around that safeguard. So, I mean, it's, it's really, at the end of the game, up to us, isn't it? It really is. And regretfully, I don't have a high opinion of, of society as a whole with regards to how they, you know, absorb and decimate, inf- or, or sorry, interpret information. Uh, but... You know, I think that's the way it's going to be, and I'm sure, without a doubt, a year from now, you and I will be having a similar conversation about how much editorial type, you know, I'm not going to call it fake news, but we'll call it editorial posts on Facebook perhaps influenced the election. And you'll, you will ask me how so many of them were able to be posted and get past the, the walls that Facebook had built, and I'll respond in, by saying that the walls had a lot of holes in them. And it was pretty easy to get through because Mark Zuckerberg basically pointed them out, which is what he's doing right now. He's like, this is what we're not going to allow, but this is what we will allow. And by doing that, he's empowered people all over the world. And, you know, people want to post this kind of stuff because they have agendas. And people want to listen and read and absorb this kind of information because they, too, have agendas. Absolutely. Uh, well, I don't know that we've solved anything. I don't know that Twitter solved anything, but uh, that's the latest chapter, and we'll see how this pans out over the next couple of months. Mark, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again. Thank you, Bill. Mark Gordon, of course, uh, expert in marketing and uh, obviously social media and the influence it can have on us and does have on us. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we're going to focus on Washington, D.C. for a little while now. Uh, this is a very big day on the political scene down there. Uh, this is the day that uh, there's going to be a vote held in uh, the House of Representatives in the Congress to formalize impeachment proceedings. Now, it's probably going to pass. And uh, with that passage of, of this legislation, uh, they will move into the next phase, which is, uh, well, we're told, going to be public hearings. And there are many, many other implications. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Uh, good morning, Elliot. How are you today? Oh, I'm just fine uh, watching TV a bit. Well, listen, I, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, this is a momentous day and a very big day, yeah. obviously, in, in politics and down in the States. But I, I just watching the coverage this morning and reading the number of papers I do, and I think it's actually being overshadowed by the Nationals winning the World Series last night in Washington. But be, be that as it may, I think by the time they finally get around to holding this vote, uh, the attention is going to be back on Capitol Hill again. Because this, this, as Joe Biden said one time to Barack Obama, this is a big deal. I won't use the, the adjective he used. <laughs> But uh, this this is going to, well, hopefully move this process along and maybe maybe add some clarity to it. Well, it certainly will move the process along. It is indeed likely to pass. The Democrats seem to have the votes, although there's a handful of Democrats who are uncommitted so far publicly. Uh, and it's momentous in that it's only the fourth time in the entire history of that republic that an impeachment proceeding has been launched in this fashion against the president. The... Um, the question is now what? What's the significance of it all? And there, 
uh, we're into, uh, everybody keeps saying uncharted waters and so forth. Uh, I've got a lot of views on this, as you might expect. Good. <laughs> so, but uh, <laughs> Essentially, we're in a situation where the Democrats have finally decided to make their stand. You and I have talked about this before on this issue. But what that means is that we have absolutely a constitutionally compelling case, but not necessarily a politically interesting or, uh, to the mass uh, majority of the public, relevant case. And that's a, a, an important distinction to make. It's highly likely uh, that from everything we know so far, the evidence will be presented that the president did indeed use his office to gain uh, gain uh, support for his, uh, himself politically, and that's an impeachable offense. Uh, the question is whether it's uh, the kind of thing that can, can get a conviction. But the other question is, is does anybody care uh, in the heartland? This is not an issue that is close to the daily life of the general population. So if you watch, as I have been doing, of course, uh, the public, uh, the, the support for the president on this, uh, his, his support among Republicans is, is unchanged. The Republican voting base. And, and therein is a story that I, I guess not too many people want to talk about, but I think it needs to be talked about. Uh, the, those who were moving this process forward or attempting to a couple of weeks ago, Elliot, uh, were pointing to some national polling that said about 55% of the people that have polled were now in, uh, in favor of impeachment and possible removal of office. Uh, that number's not getting any bigger. And, and there's been more testimony, which you'd think would have been very, very damning testimony yes. uh, from some people that you thought might have moved that needle, but it hasn't done it. Yes, uh, we um, we are all riveted right now on the minutia of the case, the details. There was a phone call. There were people taking notes. Some of those notes were clearly not complete. A uh, highly respected uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel has said, you know, I, I can fill in the blanks, and then he was told not to do so and so forth. I'm following all of that with interest. But standing back from it, what that means is even if the Democrats can put together uh, which seems eminently doable, um, proof, evidence that the president did commit this as an offense, is it, the, uh, is it convictable in the Senate? So let me stand back a bit. This is where you and I have had this discussion before. The Republicans have very effectively determined the parameters of how Democrats can proceed with this debate, uh, with the impeachment. Uh, they have said all along, uh, very skillfully, you lost on Mueller. You can't go back. Don't look at Mueller. You're just trying to re, uh, relitigate the ele- election. And by the way, that's going to come back as a primary, um, a primary charge now against the Democrats as this goes forward. Oh, sure. Republicans are going to harp on that. But you can't go back. So the Democrats obediently say, fine, we're not going to go back and look at any of the issues that have, were raised by Mueller and outside of Mueller on money laundering and, and, uh, basically economic malfeasance, none of that. All we're going to focus on is, correctly, that the constitutional uh, obligations of the president have been violated by using it for his own personal gain. That's the charge. That sharply circumscribes the, the kinds of issues that are being discussed, which in turn are the kinds of issues that might possibly uh, have more resonance than this one does. Rudy Giuliani wanders around Ukraine, well, so what, kind of thing. Uh, this doesn't touch Americans uh, at the core. So the Republicans have set the terms. 
Now they're very carefully setting the terms, I think, for how the impeachment process will go on from today. And as you, as you explained to us a couple of weeks ago, I mean, because there was some consternation and, you know, real or imagined or, or trumped up, excuse the phrase, uh, about the closed door hearings. And I understand that that's actually part of the process. This is like a grand jury trying to gather information. It was not an impeachment process that's going on behind closed doors. It's information gathering. Nonetheless, out of sight, out of mind for the American people, isn't it, Elliot? I mean, unless they actually see this going on or hear that phone call, uh, it's he said, she said, uh, uh, back and forth on this all the time. So if you're if a Trump fan, you're just listening to the talking points that they keep spewing out to say there's nothing to see here. If you don't like Trump, well, you listen to Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi, and and I don't yeah. see I don't see anybody migrating from one side to the other. Yes, and by the way, uh, Nancy Schiff was just speaking, and Nancy Pelosi is speaking for the first time right now as we are on air. So, well, I'm not sure what she's saying, but she's taking the lead on this, of course. And so is Schiff. So what we have is a situation where the Democrats are dutifully following the Republican strictures on what they can and can't talk about, and they are going to go forward now. So the Republicans have made this about process. It's unfair. You're unfair to the president. You're unfair. You're unfair. Now the Democrats have said, okay, as, of, as you and I are now speaking, we're going to set the new rules for how we go forward from here. We're going to go public. Now you can't say we're unfair because it's in private. So that's fine. But meanwhile, all this pushes the debate um, down the road. That is, we're about to enter into a whole public. Uh, we don't, it's not even clear who's allowed to testify and who's not. A lot of this is in the courts. The president says all the, a whole raft of people can't testify. At least one important one has said, well, I'm not going to go answer a subpoena, a subpoena bill by by the by the congress of america i'm not going to answer that subpoena until the courts tell me i i have to do that yes or no so now we have the courts that can delay this process the republicans can delay this process and we go not to this uh, remember this was supposed to be wrapped up by thanksgiving yeah again the republicans saying the republicans having basically set the rules on this you're just going to try to drag this out and throw mud at the president going into the president uh, into the election because you know you can't beat him so you're going to try to use this process so the democrats said no no we're going to make it very fast we're going to get this through and we're going to get it up to the senate and it's going to be all out of the way well that's not going to happen now and we're very soon into the primary season we're into the actual election year when the democrats uh, are still basically flogging along on on the process that again, does not have a lot of resonance with the general public, although it's constitutionally absolutely important. Uh, this is now a political process. Uh, and it's it's played under different rules. Let's face it, obviously much different rules than back in the Watergate days, but even the Clinton days, too. Uh, one of my favorite broadcast journalists of all time was, it was the late Tim Russett, who was the host of Meet the Press for many, many years. And I know you're familiar with him, Elliot. Uh, and he had a, a, a one of the great tools he used as an interrogator on that program was he'd ask you know Senator so and so what is your stance on this and and they'd state whatever it was you know with a spin and he'd play a clip from that senator from about six or eight months ago but it was totally right. contrary to that and that was right. a, one of those gotcha well blah, 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 blah. and they're doing that now with Lindsey Graham and, and McConnell and others talking about the Clinton impeachment and exactly parroting exactly what they're doing now with this one and saying this is the right way to go and throwing that back but these guys are so brazen right now Elliot they don't care anymore that's correct and the brazenness of it, it goes far beyond what we're currently discussing or even seeing because uh, the republicans have 
forcefully put forth their view that this is entirely meant to uh, to undo the results of the, that's the next phrase of the what you're about to hear from the Republicans. Uh, you lost the election. You thought thought you shouldn't. You're trying to uh, you're trying to undo that election. That's going to be moving a bit from the fairness onto well now you're trying to undo the election uh, results, which we've been trying to do all along under Mueller. So while we are watching this, we have to keep in mind some of which we're now seeing in public, but some which has disappeared totally. When it comes to brazenness, the there's two things that are coming out now. One of them is that uh, the Republican Party and the president clearly were running a parallel foreign policy specifically designed for the political benefit of the president. Uh, that's Rudy Giuliani, and much of the testimony we're about to hear, uh, for those junkies who follow it like me, is that, yes, uh, th- it's clear. The evidence is there. They were bypassing everybody, and all this was to get somebody somewhere to say the Bidens are corrupt. And all of this was meant to put pressure on uh, the Ukraine government, brand new government, desperate, uh, to open an official investigation. And when they wouldn't do that, now the president has released uh, his side of things just to get out into the public uh, that they can tie Biden to corruption in their minds. So that part of that is a brazen attempt uh, to, to tar a political opponent, and that's what this elect, this uh, impeachment inquiry is, is about. But meanwhile, there is a separate, almost out of sight, but really brazen, and I, it's an astonishing um, process going on, that having forced the Democrats to say, okay, we are not going to go back and deal with Mueller, even though uh, you and I talked a lot. Mueller said well, if we could clear the president, we would, but we can't. But we're not going to do any of that. The uh, Trump administration, led by the Attorney General of the United States, is simultaneously going back precisely to the origins of the Mueller investigation. Part of what was going on in Ukraine is they were trying to get get Ukraine involved in this as well. They are trying to prove the Department of Justice is launching a global campaign uh, out of our site to uh, to get evidence that (laughs) <laughs> American intelligence agencies, the CIA and the FBI, were involved in some kind of conspiracy against the president. And that's the narrative. And, you know, and there's no documentation, there's no evidence, no proof of anything. It's a, no, it's a conspiracy theory, but, they're, but the point is they are, they are pursuing this. When you use the word brazen, uh, having essentially told the Democrats you are forbidden to reopen what that witch hunt was, the Mueller investigation, uh, which was all about did the Russians, you know, intervene to help uh, the, help Trump and to hurt Hillary. And we don't have to go back over all that. But the point is that the, the Department of Justice is now in, simultaneously out of sight going around the world trying to, uh, trying to say this conspiracy theory that they were all out to get the president uh, all along. He is a legitimate president. This is what the, the heart of this is. The Mueller investigation, uh, all of that, was uh, all about showing that the election of Donald Trump was not a legitimate election. He's an illegitimate president. We're going to put, we're going to do everything we can to show that he absolutely was a legitimately elected president, even if it means undermining uh, American intelligence agencies. 
we are we going to get? I got about a minute and a half left here. Are we ever going to see a smoking gun? And and again, I hate to keep going back to the Watergate, but I mean, what turned the tide there? With the first of all, the fact that they found out that there were tapes of those phone calls, but then they started to hear the tapes. I mean, they could actually play them. I remember watching those on television yes, of Nixon actually talking about cover up and get this done, right. talking to John Mitchell and other people. Uh, I don't know that we're ever going to get a, tape, a, a, a recording of the phone call that happened. Uh, uh, and Trump keeps going back and saying it's a complete, uh, you know, uh, in- inclusive uh, transcript. And it says right on the front page of the thing that White House released saying this is not right. a transcript. Yet people are buying into that. I, I don't know that we're just going to continue well, to go in circles here. I'll, I'll, since we're, so, we're getting short on time, yes, it's entirely possible we'll have a smoking gun out of these out of the testimony here, but yes, uh, it, it may not matter. That is, it's, is there anything you and I have heard so far that suggests that the Republican base is crumbling? No. Based on the, even if you get this evidence, in which case there's not going to be 20 Republican votes in the Senate to convict. Remember, House only draws up the articles. It's the Senate that has, it sits as a jury. And even though now the military the attacks on the integrity of the military and all this relating to the Syrian Kurds and throwing them under the bus and all of that, all of that might make the Republican base more vulnerable. The Democrats have so far not made that happen, in which case conviction on impeachment is unlikely to happen, and the president will then launch his reelection uh, campaign on a triumphal note. Well, uh, we'll see what happens later on today. Uh, counting heads right now for the vote. As L- always, L.A., thank you so much for this. I'll let you get back to the coverage, and uh, we'll talk again soon, okay? <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye. L.A. Tepper, of course, from Carlton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.